Driving it home with Patty Vasquez, Patty Vasquez. From global conflicts to greenhouse gases, the folks refusing to wear masks says, and politicians getting caught grabbing asses says, she's driving it home with Patty Vasquez. <laughs> Hello and happy Thursday, everybody. Scott Sanders is already on the line with us because we're we're both joining by Clean Feet. I'm working a little remotely, and uh, Scott's giggling because I don't think you get to hear that theme song very often. Oh yes, uh, no, you do. I do. Yeah, yeah I hear a, a lot, and it still like, makes me giggle because he, he says asses. You know, asses. He says ass. He says asks. Yes, yes. See, which you, said, you know, I'm seven, you so it, okay. <laughs> and I can say that. I know. I'm just saying. Um, my husband just messaged us and he said, have a good show, just so you know. So now the pressure's Aww. on. Thank you, Steve. Scott okay. Santos is the uh, political cartoonist for the Chicago Tribune. And I apologize to folks who are looking for the, the uh, video stream today. I had to re- do this a little remotely. And, uh, and Scott very graciously agreed to come on. Because in the second hour, Scott, we do uh, every Thursday we do a segment called the Right Wing War on Public Education. So we are uh, we are taking on we're doing we're focusing on Wisconsin with uh, Kirk Bankstead uh, who has taken this uh, case to the Supreme Court in Wisconsin. So we are uh, t- talking a little bit about that. You know that the I'm guessing you saw that in Illinois it died a very uh, just a, a quiet death. The Invest in Kids program. Yeah, I don't know about. I mean, we're going to mm-hmm. disagree with that. I don't want to, uh, but um, it seemed Talk like a good idea. Put them up. Yeah. Put, put up your juice. Put them up. Well, let me ask you this. So, okay. why why wouldn't very wealthy people simply want to make donations to those scholarships, regardless? They were well, getting seventy five percent tax, ta- not tax write off, tax credit. So they were essentially, you know, could put it like, you know, they get most of that money back. I'm just saying. Right, and that's the problem with vouchers and all the other things that it, they're not geared towards the people who I believe it would help the most, which are yes. people in disadvantaged areas, people in this. You know, there there are a lot of schools. Here in I, I live in Alabama, where we are 60, 52nd in uh, math, sc- math scores, which means we are literally behind Guam in the territories, which means the Johnston Atoll kicks our butts. <laughs> Think about this Yikes. for just a moment. Anyway, but there are places in Alabama, some of the poorest counties in America, and to ex- uh, they're being failed. They're being they're, they have failing schools there. They need some. They need a lifeline out, or. More to the point, they should actually pay teachers an actual salary mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and turn it into a meritocracy versus that, you know, hey, if you get a kid that's reading at this level within, a, mm-hmm. within the school year, they should be reading a, you know, a grade above. That's, right. how you me- that's how you measure this. There are other extenuating circumstances and allows for that. But that, that's my sense of this thing. So, yeah. Well, but have you, have, you, have you taken a look at whether or not the parochial or the charter schools actually do better in testing? Because there's quite a few studies out there that, that show that they don't. A lot of the for-profit schools uh, are, like, some of them just fold because they take the money and they run. Yes. I like how yes. you point at me when we're on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree with you on, on the for-profit ones. Uh, the parochial ones, the... Um, a lot of them do perform much better. Depends on which one you send your kid to. If sure. there's an option, uh, but yeah, and, and like in anything, there's charlatans, and I mean, unfortunately, human beings are involved. So, small schooling is that what that is? <laughs> is that what it's called? Some Homeschooling it. is becoming an interesting thing. I mean, have you seen mm-hmm. the trend in this? They have, um, you know, the, the 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 homeschool community gets together and kind of hires. Uh, teachers and professional uh, educators to help run the which means that they're turning them into say it with me kids schools so um yeah it's just accountability i mean 
Patty, real quick, I, I'm a graduate sure. of, of Birmingham uh, Leadership Birmingham, and every month they did a thing like it was law enforcement or whatever. And one one year, one one month was uh, education, and we went to two schools. One was an elementary school. Oh my God, Patty, this principal was so engaged, so smart, so savvy, so energized. She hired uh, teachers who were the same way. Uh, her rule was you had to meet with a parent of one of these, and this was inner city Birmingham, it's, which is pretty mm-hmm. poor, pretty tough, sure. facing the same challenges that other inner city schools face. But she had a, a, an alchemy where the teachers reached out to the, to the parents, such as they were or were not. Um, and then we went to the high school, which was run by uh, a principal, and he may have been one of the dumbest people I've ever met. Oh, dear. Um, Yes, and the school literally had a cage the kids had to walk through to get into the school. They cut off the air conditioning to the rest of the school so those of us in Leadership Birmingham would have an air-conditioned space. Um, And clearly, you know, and that was always – that's the problem in many of these places that that the administration – because it gets there is no merit involved here, right. people get advanced and they don't deserve it. Um, it was extraordinary. The school, the, the school, first school I mentioned, Patty, their scores were comparable to the top schools in the state. And what were their special education classes like? You know, I don't know. Um, we didn't because they're not required to have special education classes. While the public schools are, they must. And a lot of the trend is generally. Oh, you mean? Oh, no, 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 no. The first school I went to was a public school. I'm sorry, I, okay. didn't, I didn't make that clear. Enough. Oh, I'm sorry. This yes. Was, no, this was a public school in the, the, the worst neighborhood in the city. So you're saying public schools, when they have the the, the foresight, the wherewithal, and hopefully the funding, can do and wonderful the things. hiring of personnel who actually ha- are are vested in the kids and make sure mm-hmm. their staff right. is just equally as vested. Perform she her school. She was. I mean, I mean, she's one of my heroes. Um, the and way that's the hard part too, isn't it? It's like getting a good teacher. Like you have to have the right people sometimes that have that vision. Well, not just you, but ask your your listeners. When I go back to Madison, Wisconsin, where I went to junior high and high school, I had an art teacher in high school, Mr. Parnell Edmund Bach. And Mr. Bach was such a great teacher that my – I know I've mentioned this before, but I'm mentioning it again because Parnell Bach is, again, one of my heroes. Uh, my, my uncle passed away, and I was doing a portrait of him for my aunt during the summer. School's out. And I'm having a terrible time, first of all, because I'm a 15-year-old trying to do a portrait. <laughs> and it looked awful. So right. I, ca- I, lo- I went to the phone book, remember those? Went to the phone book and looked up Mr. Bach's phone number, called him at home, and told him what was going on. And he said, Where's, what's your address? He says, I'll be there in an hour. And he, was, he came to my home in a, within the hour and for about a couple hours helped me work on this portrait. What? Yeah. That's and oh. so Mr. Bach passed away in a, a few years ago, and mm-hmm. so every time I'm in Madison, I go to the graveyard and oh, pay, pay, so my, pay my respects. Well, and that's the kind of teacher that teachers. I mean, See? I'm not sure how screwed up you were in high school. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, can, I can tell you, I was. <laughs> oh yeah. And there's a teacher, and he saved my life. He got me. He understood me. He Aww. he treated me with value versus other teachers who were horrible. Yeah. Oh yeah. I had one teacher that I uh, I dropped my pen in class. You'll hate this. Uh, my English teacher, Mr. Mulvey, uh, when I dropped my pen in class, he said, what are you, epileptic? 
Because oh, I, good God. Uh-huh. And I, and I was, and I, of course, I was 14. And I have a niece at the time. I mean, I was a niece when I was very young. I was, and she had epilepsy, and I was, like, really upset. One time he told, he told a student to go stand in the corner and look at the crack in the wall and tell him when it moves. I, we, I had really some across the, yeah. But, I mean, you know, it's like anywhere else. And I also had bad parochial school teachers. One was just really bad B.O. who insisted on uh, when he was talking to you and, you know, shaming you, he put his arm around you. And oh, God. It, leading up to the paddling because they, they allowed corporal punishment. My parents didn't know they signed it. And I remember him leaning in and his breath smelled. He had B.O. And I was like, oh, my God, just hit me and get it over with. <laughs> yeah, I went to we we moved from San Diego to Houston, Texas in the early seventies, and oh boy, people think Roe v. Not Roe v. Wait, um, uh, oh gosh, Brown versus Board of Education fixed segregation in the school. Oh no, oh no, oh mon frere. It was in Texas. They literally felt that uh, it was more of a suggestion. Mm-hmm. And so the southern states, there were like four or five or six, maybe more decisions along the same line saying, no, dudes, we're serious. And so yeah. I went to a school that was just beginning to segregate. I had no idea. And San Diego was, you know, San Diego, dude. <laughs> you know, and then we went to right. Houston, Texas. And oh they had corporal punishment there in the public school. And I was a white boy and I'm not, you know, I'm nothing special, but I befriended many of the, of the black students because, you know, they were cool and I liked them and, um, I defended them and that got me on their shortlist. So I was paddled constantly and my parents were going through a very hard time. So they didn't have the wherewithal to pay attention. So no, in fact, I was stabbed in the arm by a fork by one student and I got paddled for that. No, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I swear on the head of my children. That's a true story. So yeah, you know, corporal punishment. Don't, don't let anyone tell you that that's a good thing. I, I, I think you'll appreciate this. I was paddled only once for, um, making disrupting class by making my classmates laugh. (laughs) <laughs> I know. And I was in sixth grade, and, and Mr. Totally Zielinski, on brand. And Mr. Zelinsky pulled the other Terry and Rob Terry O'Connell and Rob Grabowski. She pulled them out of the he pulled them out of the classroom first. And I thought I got I was like, oh god, thank God it wasn't me. He was I don't know if they I don't know if they snitched. Patty made us laugh, whatever. And then he came into the room and did one of these beckoning with the finger thing. Oh my god. And, oh. and he said, I had a mouth like a train on a, a caboose on a track with no end. <laughs> and here I am. He was right. I can keep talking. And well, I'm just trying him. to wait. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I, like thing, most of the listeners right now, I'm trying to piece that metaphor together <laughs> and it doesn't really hang well. What? Yeah, well the they, say no it again, engine. please. So it was a caboose like with no engine on an endless track that just kept rolling. Apparently all downhill, I guess, would be his. Uh, yeah, uh, oh, 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 OK. Now, then, OK, sure. Yeah. And then uh, and then he would give you a choice. He had two paddles. One oh, was good God. He had one was called Little Mo and it was made out of pine and it had little holes in it, which made it more aerodynamic. And the other one was like a heavy, big oak one that was Big Ben. And you had to choose because you could move, you, you know, the one with holes could move harder so you get faster so you get hit, get hit with it harder. So we always chose Big Ben because we like to think he was weak. I don't know how little Mo was because I only got the one time. I would have liked to have had some comparison or something. Yeah, you know, you, I actually – here's the thing. Here's a good educator. Here's a good teacher. Sixth grade, San Diego. She knew me well enough to know, and I, I, my, my life could have gone in a different direction. But she said if I was good during class, she'd give me three minutes at the end. I could do a three-minute set. Get out of here. Where I swear. That? I could have that. 
That's Isn't that brilliant? It is absolutely brilliant, and it worked. I was like gold for the class, and then I got to, and I stole material from the best, you know, uh, uh, Bill Cosby or uh, Alan Sherman or um, Bob Newhart. I mean, all those guys. So, and I memorized their stand-up and did it. That's amazing. I'm sorry, I just got a text from Steve reminding me of the other bad teachers I had. Uh, I had a trigonometry. I had a trigonometry teacher when I was a sophomore. And he, I yawned in class, and he asked me if I was tired from walking the streets at night as a prostitute. Let's take a break here. Uh, Holy we, Mary. <laughs> I'm totally well-developed. I'm completely <laughs> normal in the head. We had a couple callers on hold, so let's take a break here and take their cool. calls. When we, when we come back, we're going to talk about some national to- topics. We'll obviously talk about uh, what's going on in Illinois with the uh, with the Uh-oh. migrants and asylum seekers, and, uh, and then there was a train crash. So we'll talk all these topics when we come back. We are hanging out with Scott Stantis. He is the political cartoonist for the Chicago Tribune. You can find all of his works at gocomics.com and in the Chicago Tribune. And you can also catch him on Center Clip with a mini podcast, anywhere from 30 seconds to five minutes with his take and other commentators with their take on the news of the day. Let's take a break here. And we want to thank our sponsors, Monaco Brewing Company, Kids Above All, and European U.S. Collision Service. More in a moment on WCPT 820, Heartland Signal. Hey there, it's your guy Warren Price from European and U.S. Collision Repair, a division of Technicraft Body Shops. We specialize in automobile and truck repair as well as normal automobile maintenance. With our highly skilled technicians and environmentally friendly materials, we strive for quality. Call 773-248-1200, that's 773-248-1200, or europeanus.com. You're listening to Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez on WCPT 820. We are hanging out with Scott Stantis, the political cartoonist for the Chicago Tribune. And you can find all of his work at GoComics.com as well as ChicagoTribune.com. We've got callers who are lining up to talk to us, uh, Scott. So let's get to the callers. We've got uh, – we, 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 we often talk about universal health care on this show. And Dave from Hoffman Estates wants to talk about that. Hey, Dave, what's going on, my friend? You're on with me and hey, Scott Stantis. Patty. Hey. hey, Patty. Hey, Scott. <clears throat> yeah, last hey, night you were, you were talking about that universal health care. And you both, you recall, remember President Obama kept talking single payer about 15 years ago until Lieberman had crossed over the aisle. Right. And because after, after he got beaten in the Democratic uh, primary or whatever, that he got, a, I think, a little bit vindictive that Obama may not have helped him a little bit, and he right. went independent. And you realize we were only one vote short of the 60 votes needed to end the Republican filibuster. And as it was said two days, I was called Lieberman, the senator from insurance, you know, because he was from Connecticut. And he, um, donors, I think, paid him off a lot, too, because they feared loss of income if uh, changes weren't made in the Affordable Care Act. Because remember, Obama and I had to keep appeasing Lieberman, kind of watering it down, if you will, just so you could say he passed the the Affordable Care Act. And the opposition mainly was over that public option, which would have forced the private health care insurers to match the same benefits for the same price, which would have cut in the profits and less money for the stockholders. And mm. and then he brought up about Scandinavia. Well, let's use uh, my my people, Finland. They've been the happiest country the last five years in a row, and they're in the upper three or so of uh, healthcare up in 
Scandinavia. They got the low, you know, lowest death mortality for kids and all of that stuff. But they have a they have a price for it though. They they have tax of like about at this time that I read it was about thirty percent tax rate for uh, net average tax rate for Finn single fin versus we paid in this story it said about 23.8 in the u.s plus and the fins are having less and less children right now and the people getting right you know a little bit older and stuff like that and they they got to get people to come over there to finland and yeah, dave the I one thing Scott's about all, Go ahead, Scott. i just want to add some stats to this uh you know whenever if you hear anyone lay out the bull hockey, the, the best medical system in America. We're now leading the civilized world, ladies and gentlemen, in child mortality. Um, mm. Our life expectancy, unlike every other country in the industrialized world, has gone down for the first time in our history since they started gauging these things. We had the opportunity to have better health care. We don't. The, uh, one of the problems is that uh, Barack Obama brought the health insurance uh, industry into the negotiations about this. And, you know, I think they should have been a peripheral side of it because it's a multi-billion dollar business and, sh- and employs a lot of people. The drawback of that is that they also demand massive pro- profits. Now, mm-hmm. you know, um, it seems to me you can have both, uh, but they – fought and fought, and now you have, somehow you have the Republicans and the people who vote for Republicans um, voting against their own best interests on health care. And it makes zero sense. For a a short time, too, if you recall, he he had both, you know, the uh, Congress and Senate for a short time, but there was a red dog dog Democrat. uh, It was a short, it wasn't, you know, maybe a couple of cups of coffee worth, but... uh, and then glass that's why that's why next time the, next time next time the dems are in a similar position we better run with all the things that we've been fighting for because otherwise i mean we, keep, we squander opportunities yeah go ahead dave what were you gonna say 15 years ago and um the drawing a comparison though to like finland is kind of, finland has got a population of roughly of minnesota and the entire u.s is you know it's, you know it's right. difficult to get a perfect model you know in well, the no, absence of trying, though, <laughs> there is no perfect model for healthcare around the world. I mean, you look at the healthcare systems, and for instance, what the British have—it's falling apart. Many of the te- it's funding because they shockingly because they kept underfunding it more and more and more. But the same holds true for Australia. I think New Zealand is okay, but those types of systems that uh, France has. Um, a national system. I mean, if you're a nurse in France, you literally work for the government. That system has its flaws. I mean, they are, they're all flawed. Right. But some are less flawed than others. And ours is the most flawed of them all. Yes. Yeah. We've only got, we've only got up to go. Wait a minute. We've only, yeah, we can only go yeah. up. Whatever we can only go up from here because <laughs> here's here's my suggestion. Coming as someone who's fairly conservative and you know who, who would pro- probably bristle at having universal just boom. Although frankly, the fact that the Democrats, as Dave rightly points out, had the House and the in the Senate in the White House and could have just said Medicare for all, which right. at this point in our history, everyone would have said, okay, this is great. We like this. We, we that's a missed opportunity. So going forward, what you could do is a free market solution, which. It's incremental. 
that's my nature to be fairly conservative that way, is to just break down and stop the insurance companies that have put this forward, the uh, cross-border competition of insurance companies. Blue Cross Blue Shield runs most states. Alabama is one of them, I think, 88%, and I'm not making that number up, of people covered by health insurance in Alabama, which, by the way, we're the most underinsured state in the union. Um, of the people who are lucky enough to have insurance, um, they have to have Blue Cross Blue Shield because there's no competition. I think if they had the opportunity between that and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas or you know, you know, venture, venture something of Ohio – it would, I think that competition naturally cuts prices and begins to cut prices. And right. I, my, my sense is start with that. S- let's start there and move forward we, and with, with the things we have in place now. And I suspect you would see costs go down significantly, but costs go up, 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 far outstripping inflation in this country. It's, it's wrong. I haven't seen I haven't seen or heard of any sense of urgency in the direction of doing no. anything to improve no. health care. And Patty, we just had – I think I told you this last show. In Shelby County, the second or third largest county in Alabama, they just shut down the only birthing center they have in that in the county. There are many counties now, more every week, in Alabama and other poor states where the county, the county, not the city, the county, has no hospital. Wow. That is, if you have an emergency, if you have a profound emergency, you're going to have to drive two hours to the next county to find a hospital. I have a question from a, a texter that lives in my home. Uh, <laughs> he asks, how does Scott even think he's a libertarian? <laughs> because there are some areas where government serves its function, that, that, that free markets are not going to step forward. But my libertarianism is the one that informs me and says, let's begin with competitive markets and see where that takes us. Okay, fine then. Fine. See, there you go. I'm so, it, part-time, part-time libertarian should be the name of your book. <laughs> <laughs> meh, I'm a meh libertarian. Meh. Okay. Uh, here when the there. mood hits me. Yeah, exactly. Let's, uh, let's, you know what, let's take a break here and we'll, we'll return to our calls when we come back. That way we don't have to cool. rush, rush anybody and be like, all right, we have to go to the break. So we'll, uh, we'll take calls, 773-763-9278. That's the number two call and join our conversation. We're hanging out with Scott Stantis, the political cartoonist for the Chicago Tribune. You can find all of his work at chicagotribune.com and at gocomics.com. Are you, can we tell people that there's another newspaper again? Or we well, not? yeah, why not? Go ahead. Yes, please. The Dallas Morning News, correct? Woo! Yeah, I was with them. I stepped away from them, and then mm-hmm. they came back with a uh, well, an offer you more, couldn't uh, refuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll give him, <laughs> you got to do a Texas accent. We'll give make him an offer he can't he refuse. So let's uh, let's take a break and come back with Scott Santos on WCPT eight twenty Heartland Signal. You're listening to Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez. In your communities in Chicago. On WCPT 820. We're good. There's Scott Santos. We're on Zoom, too. People can't see us because uh, I'm going to figure that out eventually where we can have our guests on Zoom and we can do a live simulcast that way. That'd be fun. Uh, we, it would be very fun. I'd have uh, to do I'm something ha- different with my hair. My God. Your hair looks great. You're fine. No, it doesn't. I guess you, you, you have plenty of baseball hats. If you're worried about it for yeah. Zoom, you got me, you and I. How many would you say you have? Oh, my gosh. I actually give a ton of them away every year because I told Janine, my wife, uh, that every time I buy a new cap, she just rolls her eyes. I say, okay, here's the new deal. I buy a new cap. I have to get rid of an old one. 
Right, but I don't do that. But I, I, but I love the one from the from the Chicago Bluegrass Festival. I love this one. Oh. <laughs> I have at least a hundred, easily a hundred baseball hats. Oh, easily. Wow. How do you use? Yeah. Are there like two or three in heavy rotation, and the rest are like? Yes, I would say my Gale Street hat is a heavy rotation. My SAG After hat. Uh, I don't really wear the Cubs hats as much lately, but I, I, they might go back I in rotation that. eventually. University of Chicago, I wear quite a bit. Uh, double oh, rainbow, yeah, well. du- double rainbow. I wear that from. Oh, really? uh, Yes. Oh, real quick, because I, I was, I just, I, I look at cams from around the world, and one of the cams I, I, I make sure to check is the, is the uh, Wrigley Field one. Oh, Wrigley, okay. And so what are they doing there? Because they've, they've cordoned it off again. It's surrounded by fence, and there's Scott, tubes coming off of it. I'm not following anything with the, I just, I fell off with the Cubs. Oh, all, I done? love getting, I love getting the uh, highlights from when we won the World Series and all the games that me and the whole group, like Elliot and everybody at Marie's Pizza, it was so much fun. But let me, let's, I, I know Steve from the Gold Coast has been on hold for a bit, so let's get to uh, Steve. Hey, What's going Steve. on? Hello, hello. You're almost me and Scott Santos. Yes, and I thought the conversation you were having earlier was really interesting because it's a couple of people who are on perhaps different sides of the political spectrum on some things, but who can be honest with each other, and I think it's essential to have those kinds of conversations with regard to, for instance, education. And we can all sort of relate to what you were talking about because, you know, whether you were in private school or public school, we all had bad teachers. Now, this right. is one of the things that really irks me about, you know, democratic politics, because you can't get people in, in our party, some of them, to admit, you know what, there's some really bad teachers. I had them. People who you'd walk in their classroom, they'd read a magazine during the entire period. It was up on the board what they wanted you to read. It was, okay, you start reading through the textbook. That's your assignment, to sit there quietly and read. And they would literally give the same test that they've been giving for the last 10 years. My sister was a salutatorian of her class two years before I graduated. She used to just give me the stuff that the, these kinds of teachers would uh, you know, assign, and you could, you could just copy it and submit it. I mean, there was no engagement. So, yeah, that, that's one of the problems that we have, that we need to be honest about the fact that there are some bad teachers out there, and they need to go, and we need a system that uh, accounts for that. And at the same time, we need to address the fact that, yeah, yeah privatization – is not uh, some panacea. There are a whole lot of problems. You can't compare private education with public education because private education doesn't have to take everybody. And, you know, private education, whether it's charter schools, whether it's private Catholic schools or just uh, very expensive boarding schools, whatnot, those people can simply cut you out for the smallest infraction or if you're performing badly in many cases. So you're no longer considered as part of the list, the count. When they have to, you know, sort of uh, define how well their students are doing. You know, where you end up, you end up back in public school. That has to take you. And so, yeah, I mean, there, there are all of these issues that we need to talk about. Steve, you know what? I had not you, – you just hit, said something that had not even occurred to me, and you're absolutely right, about that they can, they can cherry-pick their students. Um, and that, that – that leads to them having better scores and better performance. Um, and you're right. Where these kids go, they have to go somewhere, and they go back to public school. So, yeah, you, it's a point I hadn't even considered, frankly, and you're absolutely right, of course. And, and if I might, and, and the other point is that, let, let's face it, I mean, the, the parents who are out there struggling to get their kids into a charter school or any, any sort of school in the midst of a, a, a terrible public school system, those parents care more about their kids' education, and those kids would do better no matter where they are. Even if they're in a bad public school, they're going to be the kids that do better. 
in that bad public school. They'll, they'll be in the top 10% of the graduating class. Their parents are involved. They go to the meetings. They go to the, uh, the, the get-togethers and everything else. So, yeah, it, you know, we need to account for all these things. You know, when, when people just say, you know, let's just blindly compare this to that, that's ridiculous. That's like comparing Harvard to the University of Illinois at Chicago. Okay, not the same thing. I mean, it's a good school. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. I went to visit Harvard when I was taking Griffin around, and I because when I was younger, my mom was like, "You should have got, you could have gone to Harvard," and you know. And sometimes I wonder if I should, and I went to the campus, and I was like, "Nope, I was in the right place." I mean, I just I loved the University of Illinois. I, I don't, I, you know, I visited Princeton. I did not see a single campus that I thought, oh, I wish I had tried harder to go here. So anyway, that's really? has nothing to do about U of I and Harvard being on equal ground. I get it. It's, it's I don't know why we had to use U of I. And we'd use like Northern Illinois as a comparison. <laughs> Sorry. Or, or Harvard Sorry. College, where I went. There. <laughs> there you go. Sorry about that. Don't anyway. laugh at Harvard College. It's I'm not, perfectly I'm not. fine. It's, it you fine. did. I, I, <laughs> no, I was laughing at both of us not having gone to Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, well, Steve. you could have gone. I could not. You took trig in tenth grade. I took like beginning algebra for the third time in twelfth. So that was the end of my trig. Was my last. Uh, I did not take. Uh, what, what's the one that comes after that? There's another one that comes. There's algebra, geometry, trigonometry, and calculus. calculus. I did not take calculus. So there you go. There. You, anyway, was, is Steve still there? Steve. I don't know if we cut yes, them off. Yes, oh. can I make? Can oh. I make? Uh, yes, yeah. let, me, let me let me make this uh, these couple other points. Well, one, uh, actually, I found out that your son graduated with my nephew the same year from Lane Tech. You... Well, that was, I thought that was funny. Oh, wait a minute, so, from Lane Tech. Griffin didn't go to Lane Tech. He went to. Okay, yeah, which one did you have? One? No, oh, okay, I, went I thought to you Lane. had one that went to Lane Tech. Okay, no, you went, went to. Okay, then, okay, not, not I think case. I can okay. say. I think I can I say the number one, the number one school in the state is where Griffin went, which is not Lane. Oh, okay. He went. Okay. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, and, and yeah. So any anybody who can go to the University of Chicago, trust me, they can get into Harvard. Yeah, that's absolutely true. <laughs> and uh, and you, and you're right with with regard to this whole question about uh, how we evaluate, uh, like I said, schools and 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 students and so forth, because you've got to compare apples to apples and so forth. And uh, otherwise, you're just you're just sort of perpetuating the problem. I, I agree that you know there is no such thing as a as a perfect system, but uh, the system that we have, as you guys have pointed out, is that the bottom of the rung where the the various international bodies rank uh, countries every year in terms of health care in terms of education in terms of um, social mobility the u.s has not been atop that list in decades and that should tell us something about how broken our system is yeah Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, and the flip side of the coin, Steve, you mentioned earlier about recognizing there are bad teachers. There definitely are bad teachers, but conversely, there are great teachers. Yes, and that's where I think that yeah. and the system fails them as much as yes. it helps the bad teachers. You should that's a great these point. teachers, like Mr. Bach, who cha- I'm sure Patty has a teacher or two who changed her life, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you do too, Steve. That those teachers needed to be. Rewarded, uh, yeah. yeah, and rewarded financially. Frankly, mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with starting a teacher at 110 if we don't have tenure or you know. Again, it's a merit. You you say, oh, you're teaching this year, fantastic. Uh, your results amazing. You're teaching and you're teaching in um, you know Southside Chicago, some um, Inglewood, and you're you're teaching these kids and you're doing a great job, dude. Do that. Here, here's here's even more compensation for what you're right. doing. Right. I don't have a. That system works uh, at every level, and mm-hmm. because, like I said, there are some teachers. Um, a friend of mine, uh, a friend of a friend, 
uh, very smart guy, but he wanted to teach in inner city schools. Uh, okay. He's been stabbed twice. <gasps> I'm so sorry. Uh, and he still and he still goes back and teaches, and he is a remarkable. And he, the kids don't know it now, but when they're adults, they're going to go, "Wow, he he was something special." Yeah. That kind of teacher. Um, yeah. Those are the guys and, and women who just deserve our praise, our rewards, our, and anything we can do to make sure that they stay in the profession. You're right. I mean, I, I, I tend to, and you know this about me, I tend to focus on the traumatizing situations. And I do, I'm grateful for Mr. Waller, for uh, the teachers along the way, you know, my professor in college who encouraged me not to go to law school, although I don't know if that was a good thing. Oh, you would have been awesome. He wanted me to go to grad school for history, which I did. So he, he encouraged me with writing, and I felt very, I felt really good about that. But, but you anyway. can take a history no, I'll go ahead. I'm sorry. I know. No, it's all right. No, I, I, I imagined myself being a professor on college campuses, and that's how I thought I was going to spend my life. And it turned out differently. At any worst rate. ways to live. Exactly. Um, but hey, I, I love this life. Hey, I'm a uh, professor. There, exactly. You teach them. I am. I'm that's just having my last class coming up. So how, they call how, me how, Professor Stances, which is weird. Yes. that's. I mean, it's not. I'm not saying yes, that's weird, but yes. <laughs> Patty. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... I don't know. But it's supposed to call you, I guess, Mr. Stantis because he – well, at any rate. Uh, well, they call me Scott. I tell him to call me Scott, but go on. There you go. Uh, Steve, did you want to talk about national politics or, or was that uh, – were we good? Yeah, I, I, well, I, I, oh. yeah, yes, I do. Yes, I do. But I, I just want to backtrack for one second because you brought up a really interesting point with regard to, you know, what comes after algebra and trigonometry and so forth. I, I, I went all the way. I hold a doctoral degree. I am in no way, shape or form qualified to teach trigonometry or advanced algebra to high school. <laughs> students. So I right. wonder when people say that, you know what, you're homeschooled. By whom? Oh, yeah. I mean, who right. is this know-it-all well, person that yeah. could possibly be yeah. qualified to prepare their kids for post-secondary education? I mean, you, right. I, I, you, could, you could possibly be qualified to prepare them to work in a steel mill, but if you have ambitions beyond mm-hmm. that, I, yeah, I find it highly problematic. Right. No, I agree. I agree with you Fair on enough. that. What, Fair point. But, but I, I have a couple other callers on the line, but you wanted to talk about national politics and, and the asylum seekers? Uh, yes, and, and I, I'm glad that people, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to develop some long-term policies with regard to how we're going to address this. Um, I do think that it is going to be a, a bit of a thorn in our side with regard to the upcoming election cycle, because, like it or not, this is yeah. going to be, it's, they're going to try and tar us with this. You know, that the, the reason that your city is full of these kinds of people, you know, is because the Democratic Party. You know, it's one of the reasons that New York, which is generally considered a pretty blue state, elected a bunch of congressmen who were Republicans in the last, last go-around. And, you know, so that there are a lot of mid, middle-of-the-road Democrats who would otherwise vote re- a Democrat. But, you know, given the right issue or enough frustration, and if we allow them to tarnish us with some of these things, they could go the other way. And I, would, I don't necessarily think that elections mean the end of the world, but I don't know if this country can survive another uh, Donald Trump presidency. I really don't. Yeah, I agree with you. Scott uh, is in agreement. I can see by his hand oh, gestures. Total. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, we can't. We can't because no. listen, his rhetoric. Yeah. You too, Steve. His rhetoric this last ten days have been terrifying, and Republicans, yeah. not one. Now, I'm sorry, I almost said a bad word. Not one Republican in the House has has said this is wrong of him to say that. Yeah. Creating building concentration camps to put your enemies is a bad thing to say. Mm-hmm. No, yep. they're not saying it because, because they don't. They don't disagree with them. Let's uh, take another call before the break. Let's take. Uh, let's let's have Jim take us to the break. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind, my friend? 
Hi, uh, Scott, you got a chance to vote for a libertarian. The shaman's running. I don't think he's going to use his Christian name. He's, gonna, he's just a shaman. I don't think he's ever Native American. <laughs> but uh, he's running, I don't know what, what state, but he's running it for the house. Good place for him. I was going to say, you know, the banter between uh, Sidney Powell and Jan Ellis, uh, they're starting to testify now. And it sounds like something out of a Meyer Lansky or a... Lucky Luciano, Luciano Hash House in Brooklyn, the boss. The boss doesn't like this. The boss ain't leaving. The boss, this is, now these are people are, yeah. that's why you, but Pat, you die as a boss. If that's a law decree, I'll eat my hat. Uh, <laughs> if that's a law decree, I'll eat my hat. If you could sit around and discuss who's the boss, the boss, they refer to him as the boss. I mean, how nutty are these people? They, these are grown people in their 60s and 70s. Who's going to call anybody the boss? Nobody in their right mind. But the point is, the point is, Jana Ellis, they're going to testify to all this. So all this is going to fall out like Niagara Falls over the next year. I mean, because nobody, these people don't want to go to prison. They're not like the suckers that are doing 15 years in the joint for uh, support. I mean, you like to be sitting in a jail cell with Trump's picture over in the jail cell. You and the, you and Trump doing 15 years in the joint. You'd have to be out of your skull. But he's got about, what, 150 people doing at least 5 to 10 to 15 years? With no, he, has no remor- he has no remorse about any of us. No remorse yeah, no. At, at all. Well, because because how, they how, don't how, they, how would you feel? How would, your cat, wow. how would you go to sleep? At, how would you go to sleep at night? And knowing that you put 120 people in jail for over 10 years, how, how do you how do you conscience that? I think he feels good about it. He thinks that, he, that that makes him feel important. That makes he has no conscience. Obviously, exactly. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, Jim. I yeah. got to run to a break. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jim. Take care. Let's take a break here, and we've got a couple more callers on the line. Just Scott, you've you've brought the callers out tonight. I love this. Uh, thank you everyone for calling and texting 773-763-9278. We'll be back in a moment on WCPT 820 Heartland Signal. Hi, this is Kirk Bankstead from the Minocqua Brewing Company, and I sell Choice Hard Seltzer, an all-natural grapefruit-flavored booze that you can enjoy for only 100 calories a can. Percentage of the proceeds of every can of Choice Hard Seltzer you buy goes to reproductive rights organizations in the Chicagoland area. Enjoy a light, refreshing hard seltzer this summer and support reproductive freedom at the same time. Buy yours at Beer on the Wall, Arlington Heights, Woodman's in Bloomingdale, Kenwood Liquors in Homer Glen, and more to come. Must be 21. Please drink responsibly. You're listening to Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez. There's so much that goes on behind closed doors. On WCPT 820. Hey, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us. We're joined by Scott Stantis, the political cartoonist for the Chicago Tribune. And uh, we know we had a couple callers that were on hold. And Kathy is joining us. She has some experience with out-of-state insurance. What's on your mind, Kathy? Hey, hi. So I'm a nurse at a local health system, and we have a lot of patients who have Blue Cross policies that are just called Blue Cross out of state. And these policies do not cover as well as the Blue Cross of Illinois policies do. So I thought that was kind of interesting. That is interesting. That's really interesting. No, I would love to get Blue Cross of Illinois here. I think it would be awesome if they were allowed to come and compete. That would be be great. 
Yeah, I, I tried. I was on Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois for, well, and, uh, for a while, and I thought, oh, let's see what this other one is like. No, 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 no. That was a bad year. Bad, 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 bad. bad. Did not like. Did not like. That's something you want to try around. Don't mess around with that. <laughs> hey, Kathy, how, how long have you been a nurse? Uh, 17 years. Well, thank you so much wow. for all your hard God work. Bless you. I, I do. I do you. still. Do you feel like you're still? I mean, has it gotten any better since the pandemic, or is it still like here's a pizza party, enjoy that kind of a feeling? <laughs> um, no, I had a, a good pandemic experience. The health system okay. I work for, I, I'm you know, I've been at the same one for all 17 years, so I felt oh. well taken care of by my employer, which I know is not the same everywhere, but I f- have felt that. And, oh, that's great. Yeah, they did by us. Yeah, I was very blessed. Very blessed. Continue to be blessed. Uh, hey, can I try this? Some, Patty, you can say no, but Kathy, you've been a, you've been a nurse for seventeen years. You say yes. Okay, Patty has played a nurse on television. <laughs> And I want to hear. I want now, Patty. Can you say the line you say every time you're on, and see if Kathy thinks you do it right? Visiting hours are over. Family can stay. Everyone else, you need to go and get some rest. That's, that's, that's good. They usually do it a little nicer. But <laughs> I know that's why they hire me because I'm so. They like that I'm not very uh, tender. No, cut and dry. I often. I often have to uh, throw people out of a room. Yeah. I, I got a lot of hate on the last one I did. Like, nurse didn't read the vibes of the room. <laughs> I tried. I kept trying to be, like, softer. Yeah, they, they hire me when they want the really mean nurse to come in. Sometimes you need to be the mean nurse. It just happens. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm the one getting the pizza party instead of the raise. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> thank you so much kathy great to hear from you have a good night you That's too so thank funny. you thank you and we have night, another call. thanks for your work they yes thank oh. you so much for your work uh, thank, thank you. you i appreciate that uh we also have peter from uh peter from chicago wants to join our conversation hey peter what's on your mind hello yeah hello uh, good hi yeah, uh, uh, one reason the uh, health care costs are so high in this country is because they have to do so much work in billing at hospitals because of all the uh, different insurance companies. Yep. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. with the and, hospitals, uh, they overbill. They overbill so they get a port at least oh, close to what, they, what the costs are. It's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. I know. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, Thanks, Peter. I just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you just, oh, I don't know what else. I, I felt bad. Hi, thank you for calling, Peter. That was lovely. I feel thank like that you, was the first time he's called. I feel like I, I should have been Aww. able to give, we give, we give, we give gift cards on Fridays for first-time callers. Peter, if you call tomorrow, I'll count it because you called today as a first-time caller. I'm just saying. And Dennis wow. from Evanston is joining us. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind? Hey. Hey, how are you? And I am a first-time caller. Darn. All right. Yeah. All right. You I can wait you until call tomorrow. It. No, call tomorrow, too, and I'll count it. Peter and Dennis will count. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> I can tell. What's okay. on your mind, Dennis? Uh, well, I wanted to uh, say something about the um, insurance that you were uh, talking about earlier. Uh, although, I, sorry, I missed the school conversation, too. Um, but I just started um, my my uh, Medicaid, Medicare, and oh. it is a nightmare just trying to figure out what I have and what I don't have. And then doing the, the, the gap and, and all this other stuff, it's, 
it's I cannot tell you how many hours I have spent on the phone trying to figure out how to find a doctor that I De- or a dentist and stuff. It's just ridiculous. Scott has some Dennis, thoughts. Um, I am just I am Dennis. I'm just about to transition to Medicare uh, in the next mo- month or two. Is it that much of a nightmare? Because you're making me feel very bad. Oh yeah, no, uh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so I'm glad to, to to share this with you uh, because it's so joyful. Um, I wanted to get a um, I wanted to get uh, see a dentist, and I walked into the dentist's office and I showed him the stuff that I have and uh, the cards, and they're like, oh no, we can't take any of these. I'm like, but and they're like, wow. no, you need to get you need to get this other one. And so I listened to Tom Hartman in the morning, and he has a lot of stuff going on about uh, the Medicare um, Advantage. And so I call this number, and it's like it's Medicare Advantage, and it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> I don't really want to talk to you guys. And right, to right. find anybody who's really knowledgeable or doesn't want to take money from you is like really a difficult thing. And, you know, um, I, I wish I was able to still continue. Well, I I guess I would have had the option, but I wish I was still working in, in some sort of, uh, capacity that was giving me health insurance because this has turned into just hours and hours on the phone and trying to figure out what goes where and who gets what. And, you know, they send you one card and then they uh, say, but that's, I need another card for, for what, you know, and it just goes, it just seems to go around and around. And then of course you just got to wait on hold too for a lot of these, um, you know, a lot of the, these people to get to get to you. So it's just really, it's really a very, uh, when you were talking about healthcare and other countries and how we do it here, it's, it's a scary mess. And I don't know if we're willing to fix it. I don't know what, what motivates, because, you know, dude, you, I mean, you and I are going through the same thing. I don't know what, what, what they, can do now it is just so complicated like you said and you know i, I i'm not stupid i i'm stupidish sometimes but not compl- utterly and no. it sounds like you At are all. a smart not fellow really. and navigating these waters is really really hard it seems almost like they make it complicated on purpose I and mean, then you, you add that the stress. Yes, go ahead. Go ahead, Dennis. Yeah, I, I feel like the stress well, I, is also. And I sold health insurance at one point in my life. Oh, my God. <laughs> no. Oh my no. God. But I did sell it. I did. Wow. I, I worked for the, the National Association of the Self-Employed, uh, selling that insurance uh, for about a year. Um, wow. And, and stuff. And so I feel like I have, I'm a little bit well knowledgeable of this stuff, and I completely feel stupid. Uh, talking to these, trying to figure this out. I'm so sorry oh, about that. And you could, wow, go ahead, Patty. I'm sorry. No, I, I just want to make sure Dennis calls tomorrow because I want, I want, I, I have, I, I feel like asking now, but I'm going to ask him tomorrow. Hopefully he calls back. 
<laughs> I, I feel like Dennis is from the East Coast. He's got like he, it's not quite a Chicago accent. It sounded like a, a Boston or New York accent. We have to run, Scott, because we have the uh, the right wing war on public education coming up in just a moment. Uh, let folks know where, where they can find you, all your cartoons and your commentary. Uh, well, you can go to gocomics.com slash Scott Stantis. That's one word. You can go to gocomics.com slash Prickly City and see my comic strip, strangely enough, called Prickly City. You can go to chicagotribune.com slash opinion and see a gallery of the work I do for them. And go to Center Clip and you can hear my rantings, 30 seconds, no longer than five minutes on this issue and that. They have an issue of the day. And you can also hear our favorite person, Patty Vasquez, there as well. Thank, thank you. Yes, I, I got to get better about the, submitting some more audio. So thank it's you so much. It's a gift much, card. Scott. There are gift cards involved. I, I yeah, they they still haven't sent me the ones from August, so I took uh, September off. That's not um, why. I'm just teasing. I think that there was a bit of a miscommunication on the emails. Anyway, Scott, I adore you. Thank you so much for joining joining us today. I look forward. And uh, I think I'll, I'll be in and out of whiskey and a cookie tomorrow. So if you can join us, let me know, and I will send you that invite as well. Oh, and, please yeah. do. Yes. All right. Excellent. Okay, great. Have a great night, my best Janine and the family. We are going to take a Love break you. here, and we're going to catch up with the news. And when we come back, we're going to continue our segments on the right-wing war on public education. More in a moment on WCPT 820, Heartland Signal. Introducing the right-wing war on education, starring Betsy DeVos, evangelical Christians, and a few dudes who rented out strip malls, called themselves schools, and stole your public school tax dollars. And on the third day, God created the Remington Bull Action Rifle so that man could fight the dinosaurs and the homosexuals. In this hour, we'll talk about how Republicans want to dumb our kids down and what we have to do to stop them. As always, leading the conversation is Patty Vasquez. But with her, we have Kirk Bankstead of the Monaco Brewing Company, who is leading the charge to get rid of the parasitic voucher school system in Wisconsin. And a few fellow public education warriors he brought along to educate us. The right-wing war on education is brought to you by the Monaco Brewing Company. Take it away, Patty. Hey, hey, thank you so much for joining us for our weekly segment on the right-wing war on public education. We've been doing this for several weeks, and I want to thank uh, Kirk Bankstead because uh, you, Monaco Brewing Company, have really shared a lot of important information to our listeners. So let's remind them of where where this came from, why you're so uh, dedicated to uh, this entire cause. Go ahead. A little bit of a review. Okay, so we filed a lawsuit, or we, I, the Monaco Brewing Company Super PAC funded a lawsuit to try to overturn the parasitic voucher school system in Wisconsin. We also are trying to get rid of rem- revenue limits, which are part of that funding system that uh, that really uh, attacks and uh, you know kind of takes takes money away from public schools. Uh, but if, if we're going to sue uh, in the Supreme Court, and and we might you know take away thousands of, of vouchers for kids to get into uh, private schools, um, some people would, some people might think that's dangerous or bad, and it, it's absolutely not. And so part and parcel of our lawsuit is explaining why the parasitic voucher system is, uh, is, is bad for public schools. It's bad for, for every kid in Wisconsin. And, and we've, we've attacked it from every angle. I mean, we've, we've talked about the history being steeped in Brown versus Board of Education, which is, uh, steeped in, uh, in, in, in kind of racist, uh, measures. We've talked about disabilities. Kids with disabilities get, don't get a, don't get a fair shake in voucher systems. You know, LGBTQ kids can get kicked out. There's no accountability in these private schools, whereas in public schools, you have school boards, you have a host of ways where, where tax dollars can be kind of regulated and, and, and made sure that they're being spent correctly. So we've hit it a bunch of different ways. This is the last show 
of our series. And the reason, and we're going to talk about uh, race today uh, specifically because we were attacked. Uh, Dr. Julie Underwood, uh, I and my, my, my legal team were attacked by the American Federation for Children, which is a Betsy DeVos backed school choice lobby uh, through one of their fellows who was a, a young woman who was going to college. She was a, a young a Latin, Latin woman of color who was writing as a fellow for Betsy DeVos's group. And she attacked us for, you know, trying to take away her opportunities, which, which we responded, congratulations for getting a wonderful educational opportunity. But there's so many other kids who are not getting that because they're being, being deprived of dollars in public schools. So this show, we wanted to address that issue. It's our last show, and it's probably the most important issue in this voucher school area is, is race. Uh, and especially because, obviously, I'm a white guy from rural Wisconsin, and, and, and so is Julie. Uh, so it, it's hard for us, and we, I don't have that history. Uh, but So we invited some, some guests who have done a lot of research in this area, um, and, and I wanted to introduce our first one now. Patty, is, are we able to do that? I think we can do that. I would love to introduce our, our guests that you have invited to the show. And I and this is so important because this is what people say. Well, you don't like children of color. Why do you want to take away these opportunities? And and it's it is. Yeah, it's bull hockey. That's bull, the best way. I can... Bull pucky. We can say that on the radio. <laughs> so, OK, so our get we have we have a great guest. We have two guests today and we have a third segment where we're going to wrap up the entire uh, season. But Don. Uh, Don Tanya Batts uh, is our first guest for this week. I did it right. I, I, I checked ahead of time. I want to make sure I got, I got your name right, Don Tanya. Uh, so she's from Indiana, and Miss Batts is on the board of the Network for Public Education Action, which is a national advocacy group for public schools. And then within Indiana, she works for uh, Public Voices for Public Schools. She has a law degree and was formerly a high school English teacher. So first question for you, uh, Don Tanya, uh, Tell us about the voucher school uh, environment in uh, in Indiana. Well, in Indiana, we have a near universal voucher system. And um, up until recently, about 90% of the state dollars that would go to local public schools are now going toward um, tuition to fund the tuition of private school educators. Now, what might surprise you is the income limits that are that will allow one to get universal, get a voucher. Sorry. So previously, um, the income limit was 300 percent of the, um, you know, of the was the threshold. 300 percent um, of roughly 140, $154,000 for a family of four would be eligible for a voucher. Now it is 400 percent. And the cutoff to qualify for um, free and reduced lunch, which is a common indicator of financial need. Now, a family of four who earns about $220,000 a year is now eligible. Now, what does that mean? That means that students who are currently enrolled in private schools and their parents were paying for their education, which is totally their right to pay for a private school education, are now eligible to take state dollars to supplement or subsidized, or as I call it, take state-funded um, welfare um, for the wealthy. And under the guise of saying that we're providing opportunities for people of color. These were students who were already in private education, paying for it, and now 
taking away public dollars in order to subsidize their education. Now, how does that help students of color? Right. Yeah. How? (laughs) Basically rewarding the wealthy for being wealthy and contributing to more wealth. It's it's insane. And I understand that you have experience of voucher schools. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I was the poster child for private education or for vouchers. I'm sorry. My students, um, I have four boys and we were in um, private schools. I made a conscious decision to educate my students privately. I had a very good public school education, but as the result of a divorce, I wanted my children to have a very specific worldview, which was a biblical worldview in every aspect of their lives. And it wasn't until the younger two um, entered school and we started to have issues. Um, Actually, my oldest child wanted to become an engineer. However, um, the school wasn't willing when I sat down with the school counselor to help provide or direct us in areas of um, extracurriculars for STEM education, et cetera. They were just limited in what they could offer academically for for my son. Then, so I took him out and put him in the program that I graduated from, which was a magnet school in one of the biggest um, public high schools in our city. But it was my youngest child where the issues really started to happen. He thinks differently. He's a genius, but wasn't Um, because of the interactions with the teachers he had, he had a teacher who had never had children. And apparently she had a specific idea of what a black student from a single home was like and projected that onto my son where he felt that he was not smart. He was um, constantly being picked on in the classroom. I remember one time he wrote an essay about what he wanted for Christmas. And he said, he likes, he's very picky eater. He wanted food. And um, I declare she wanted to call CPS on me because she thought that I was not feeding my children. And this was after three times going back and forth to the school and them know we have we don't need any, any money or, you know, you know, he's not hungry. But um, when they were about to fail, flunk my son, I took him out and homeschooled him because I needed to reboost his um, his self-esteem. And now he's thriving and doing well. But my point is that experience really opened my eyes to the lack a of resources that were provided to my students. And also they were being deprived of a holistic view of who they are. It was from a very narrow perspective. And I didn't want that for my sons. And so I took them out and put them in private school. I'm sorry, in public schools, I declare. <laughs> I am like, <laughs> I got so- private school on my mind. So thank you for that uh, personal story. I kind of so it's great to to understand that you know you were you're an you you were in both sides of this kind of uh, debate, and uh, you chose public schools for uh, to, to uh, enable your children to get a broader education. Now the the question is this though, um, you know, you chose and uh, you chose at first to send your kids because you wanted to get a biblical worldview. I get that. There's a lot of parents do that. Uh, and, and when we, when we're talking about voucher schools and trying to uh, get rid of them, it's not because we don't want kid, uh, parents to send their kids to private schools that are religious schools, like go for it. Just, we just don't want public tax uh, dollars to go to that. But, um, the bigger question is, you know, it is a lar- largely, at least in Wisconsin, about 80 percent of the folks who take school vouchers are taking it, would have gone to religious private schools anyways. Um, and so 
seem, seemingly the school choice world, the people that are pro school choice should just say, listen, we want state tax dollars to go send kids to religious schools. But instead, they say, we want to provide the parents with a choice. And they also say, we want to be able to lift up uh, kids that are that are, you know, that are that are poor and, and, and kids of color and get them to a better opportunity. Why do you think they talk about helping kids of color uh, as opposed to just talking about what's really happening, allowing state dollars to pay for religious schools? Optics. It's a better argument. It's one that would allow um, it, it, it's an argument that provides mobilization. If you have the majority of black and brown students who are enrolled in public schools and there's a massive marketing campaign to create a negative view of public schools, every person, every parent, I would say, I argue, wants the best for their child. There is no way that whatever color you are, you will continue to send your child to a school that is labeled as failing. And it's not. And if you look at the demographic side by side, private schools do not perform better than public schools. And as a matter of fact, public schools do a better job at educating students than the private school students because private schools get to cherry pick or select the elite among all of, of all students to educate them. So if we're looking at honor student, honor student, they're probably doing about the best. They're doing best. The, um, they're doing about equal, if not better public education. But if you look at the totality of the demographics of the students that public schools must educate, um, those with disabilities, those from impoverished areas, those who don't speak English, honor students, there's a combination of all of that. You can argue that public schools do a better at, better job at educating students. Now, there's a couple of arguments here that say the, some of the reason why this movement is, why you would market and say that um, we can't say that we want to provide, um, fund uh, religious education because it doesn't sound good, the separation of church and state, if people remember what that means. But also at the heart of it, two benign arguments are that privatization undermines teacher unions. It's a base support, it's a, it's a base um, support for the Democratic Party. And there were um, you know, to gut the Democratic Party, um, that's one way. Let's privatize education or privatize everything. But then again, privatization rhetoric also talks about wooing African-Americans and Latinos under the guise of equity to, um, you know, to bolster this argument. It sounds better, but the bottom line is it's not about helping our black and brown students, especially if you're not the um the ideal student, the, the one that fits into the culture of what the private school looks like, wants. Um, there's a system of workers. If you look at the state pathways in Indiana, we're creating workers and not thinkers. So, yeah. you know, it's a sinister thing and it's, it's not designed for all black and brown students. Yes, there are black and brown students who are benefiting and doing well, but the majority of black and brown students don't get chosen to be in the public, in the private school of their choice. 
Can you tell us a little more about that and that the uh, the way in which it's really not about choice? Because that's what's promoted, what people say over and over. You don't believe in choice when you just mentioned that the schools actually get to choose and cherry pick their students. Absolutely. Well, the whole premise behind private education is that it is for the elite, the best, because you pay for it, right? Well, um, who here can go to Notre Dame and say, hey, I want to be um, a part of your school? I'm choosing you, Notre Dame. No, they have a criteria of the kind of student that they want at Notre Dame. Hence, I can't go to any K through 12 private school and say, I choose you. Okay, maybe for the first three months until the, I don't know how it works in Wisconsin, but maybe until the count day, the ADM count day, where they determine how many students you have enrolled on a particular day. And based on that number of enrollment, that's how much you get funded. Okay, we'll let you in for the first three months or however weeks it is in order to get the state funds. But we'll gingerly exit you out the back door. And so you you cannot really choose a private school. The schools still choose you. And I must say that we've always had a choice to attend a private school. Always. You have always had choice. (laughs) So, so I, let me go back and I I think we've got about a minute left here. Uh, Let me go back to something you said earlier. Um, Optics. So, you know, if the public schools are primarily, uh, you know, uh, full of, you know, kids of color, and then they, and then there's a marketing campaign that says that these schools are bad. That's kind of saying they're bad because they're full of kids with color. And if they're saying that to parents of kids of color, then they're convincing those parents that they got to put their kids into private schools with less kids of color, you know, in order to get a better education. That seems, that seems really like like sinisterly kind of underhandedly racist kind of as well. I mean, is, is this, am I reading what you said correctly? You are reading what I say correctly. By labeling a school um, failing, you in turn, or bad, you in turn associate that with those who attend that school. I'm bad. I'm not. I remember teaching at a school and a student saying, our school is trash. Why is our school, you know, and trying to say, you go to this school. You have pride. You're you're bright. There's nothing trash about this school and there's nothing trash about you. And, you know, schools are made up of people, (laughs) you know, and so we can make those associations. And unfortunately, our students are making those associations and coming out thinking negatively about themselves and their ability. When I have seen some of the most brilliant minds and some of the most um, most depressing or quote unquote labeled underperforming um, classrooms that you would ever want to imagine. The difference is resources. The difference is um, raising the standard and not lowering the standard. Going to a school that doesn't give out D's and F's is not raising the standard for our students. Um, Because I I believe that you really cannot talk about um, private school vouchers without also talking about charters because charters are also the whole point of this is to dismantle public education as we know it. Ever since Brown v. Board, there's been an effort, a collaborative effort by the wealthy of this nation to undermine, to defund, and to eliminate public education. And the root of that is racist in its to, to the core. And it's unfortunate that we are going to destroy the 
the fabric of our country yep. because we don't want all, all we don't want to create a nation of thinkers who, regardless of what you look like, um, can be educated together and to change this country into right. what it was, um, you know. I can't say what it was originally meant to be because this is what it was originally meant to right. be. <laughs> but the I, ideal that includes the inclusivity of what it was originally meant to be. I cannot thank you enough for your expertise and for sharing your personal story. Uh, Don Tanya, it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, I look forward to, to connecting with you in the future as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great evening. You as time. well. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to we're going to introduce our next guest, Dr. Preston Green, in a moment on WCPT eight twenty Heartland Signal and KTNF nine fifty AM. And we are continuing our conversations, uh, sponsored by the Monaco Brewing Company and the mighty leader of Monaco Brewing Company, Kirk Banks. Said as we continue to cover the right wing war on public education. And Kirk, I know you have uh, lined up some great guests tonight. Please introduce us to our next guest. Sure. So we're talking about uh, race in the voucher school system. Uh, is- is it really what it's all cracked up to be? A lot of uh, the voucher school advocates, uh, school choice advocates say that voucher school helps uh, kids of color. Uh, we're, we've got Dr. Preston Green here to talk about this issue. Uh, Dr. Green is a professor of urban education at the University of Connecticut. His law degree is from Columbia Law School and his Ph.D. is from Teachers College, Columbia University. He's affiliated with the National Education Policy Center in Boulder, Colorado. His specific area of expertise is exactly this topic, and it's on vouchers and whether they are good for kids in public schools. He has published widely on topics such as discriminatory discriminatory impacts of vouchers, religion and voucher schools, racial disparities, and segregation within voucher schools. So, Dr. Green, what does the research show in terms of voucher schools having a positive or negative impact for students of color? Well, first of all, I want to thank you so much for having me on and to talk about this really important topic. And certainly we're all watching nationwide to see what Wisconsin does. And so, first of all, before going into the research about vouchers, it's important to understand that vouchers have been, you know, that, that they are advertised really as an opportunity, you know, that it provides an opportunity for black and brown students. Um, in Zelman versus Simmons Harris, the Supreme Court case that, um, that upheld the constitutionality of voucher programs, the Supreme Court actually did talk about how vouchers could, um, provide an opportunity for, uh, students of color attending public schools to improve their educational outcomes or get chances by, uh, enrolling in voucher programs. But the research hasn't really borne that out. And in fact, um, in uh, Louisiana, Ohio, um, Washington, D.C., among others, uh, Louisiana, Ohio, Indiana, and Washington, D.C., for uh, where there have been four major voucher programs that have been passed, there's been research that has found that those students, urban students who or students of color who attend these voucher schools actually lose a great deal, uh, do much, do much more poorly than their traditional public school students on state, sta- on state, um, standardized tests. And in fact, in Louisiana, it was found that a student who was, uh, performing in the 50th percentile, um, in a, in a public school went down to the 34th percentile uh, in math in one year. So we're talking really major, major losses. And this was something that um, I think that voucher folks had not 
really anticipated. Now, in Washington, D.C., there were losses, but they found that, you know, they eventually did catch up over time. But the point I want to make here is that, you know, we're finding that 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 uh, students are not performing all that well in these programs and that even when in D.C. where they might have caught up, this is no reason to have an expansive program that is taking funds away uh, from traditional public schools and including urban school districts that are already underfunded. Dr. Green, why would kids that are going to voucher schools in Louisiana do worse than in the public schools? Uh, what is the potential? I mean, it's opposite of what is, is what's being marketed to these kids. Why is well, it happening? Do you have any idea? Well, there, there were a lot of discussions about this and a lot of theories. Um, I think that, and I don't think, um, I, you know, I think the proponents of voucher programs stated that what had happened was that um, the, the top flight uh, voucher schools refused to participate because of the need to, you know, because of the requirement that they had to have state standardized tests. And so what their excuse was, was that the really good schools uh, were tuned off by the um, testing requirements and the accountability requirements. Um, but that, of course, is the way that we can actually determine, one of the ways that we can determine how schools are performing. And how it, whether or not students are learning. Is it so, possible? Sorry, sorry. Is it possible that these a lot of these schools? I mean, we've heard about pop up voucher schools in earlier uh, in earlier episodes where the average voucher school lasts about four years. Is it possible that these schools got all these public money opened up to be able to collect that public money, but didn't necessarily care about the kids that were going to those schools, and, and then thus. It, by extension, those kids didn't do so well on standardized tests. It is a possibility. That certainly is a possibility. Again, that um, the one of the expectations is that students of color are going to go to Chilt. They're going to go to the, you know Andover. They're going to go to these like wonderful um, voucher programs. But that isn't the reality for a lot of students. They end up going to some of these um, pop up schools or other schools that are just not that well established. So, I mean, that certainly could be a reason for this poor performance for many of these schools. But Dr. Green, the, the architects of these programs say this is this is this is exactly the kind of school system that will benefit lower income children and children of color. Certainly they're not lying to us and trying to pull one over <laughs> on us, are they? Well, you know, I think that many of them are true believers. You know, I think many of them Many of them believe in the market. I mean, they, they think about this in, in religious terms. So I will, I mean, I do think that certainly there are, you know, I write a lot about scams and, uh, if you look at some of the research that I've done, I talk about scams and, um, you know, um, funding accountability or, or, but I do think that many folks are true believers. And, um, you know, even, even with that, I think that's still hard to argue against the problems that we are seeing and, um, you know, the sort of like the, the differences and protections that students of color will have um, in voucher schools versus traditional public schools. And I wish that they would address these issues head on, which many of them refuse to do. Is there a particular scam, a scam you could highlight or that, have you seen these schools, uh, how they how badly they use um, these kids? 
Well, I will say that um, I, your pre, I mean, I think your previous, um, your your previous um, person had talked a little bit about the um, the sort of accounting scam where they uh, will like have students in voucher schools on October the first, and then find ways to remove them later on. Mm. So, I mean, so you see things like that, but I always tell people that. Um, you're, you know, the one thing to really pay attention to when you start thinking about the sort of scams that you're, that you're going to be seeing is what has happened in charter schools, which is another area that I, that I write about. And because of this lack of oversight, we've seen, you know, major examples of real estate fraud. We've seen examples of, um, I won't go into the legal discussions about related party transactions, but basically shell games where you see money being moved around from different uh, to different little programs where students were actually not being, they were not actually educating students, but for pocketing that money. And this is in charter schools, which are ostensibly public schools where there is supposed to be oversight. And I always say that, you know, um, if you see what's happening in charter schools where there's oversight, if you, you will see this exponentially increased if you have these sorts, if you start um, expanding voucher programs. So, I mean, in, so of course, like you see this in Florida with the education savings accounts, for instance, with those parents who are, you know, going to Walt Disney and are going yeah. to yes. give that money Crazy. to educate students. So, you know, I always joke that you're going to see a lot of uh, reporters getting Pulitzer Prizes following this as they uh, follow <laughs> the money and see where it yeah. goes. Yeah. So, so I have a follow up because, and the reason uh, you were you weren't there earlier when I introduced the show, or maybe you were. The reason I wanted to do this show specifically is because there was uh, the American Federation for Children, which is Betsy DeVos's school choice lobby, um, uh, had a had a had a young student of color who was a fellow for this lobby write about our lawsuit and how, uh, and she said, why are you trying to take away opportunities for kids of color? Um, you know, I was a product of a great Catholic school. I wouldn't have been able to go there without a voucher uh, to get there. And look at me now. I'm, I go, I'm going to Marquette University. All the things she said were wonderful. And, and, I, and I was like, this, this is fabulous. But what about all those other kids that don't get that money that you've taken away from from uh, from the public school system. So the the question I have for you is, and I talked to uh, our other earlier guest Don Tanya about this as well, is the marketing that we're seeing from the school choice lobby lobby is that public schools in urban areas, which are primarily filled with students of color, they're terrible schools. Terrible schools are failing schools. Um, they get that hammered into them. And then all of a sudden you have parents at these public schools like, thank God they're giving us vouchers to get out of this hell hole, <laughs> even sure. though they've taken all the money away from the public schools and made it less uh, l- less able to serve students. So um, so isn't it like reverse? You know, if they if they're saying that that public schools filled with kids of color are inherently bad and the only way you can rescue them is to move them into private schools with less kids of color. Isn't that the more, isn't that like inherent, like an insidious way to, to say that like public schools with kids of color are bad. Uh, I mean, or, or they're, it's insidiously racist in some, in some fashion. I don't know. Well, I'll answer it this way. I can certainly, I, you know, there, 
I mean, I will say that um, when that student talks about like the issues of public schools, you know, one of like, I write a lot about school funding, um, school funding issues that students of color face. And I will say that, um, you know, there certainly is a history of of school districts being underfunded. So, you know, I've, I've written a lot about that. And um, so a lot of the voucher uh, proponents talk about this and then they say, you know, look at what's happening. We're going to give, there's this bigger, better offer that we can provide for you, uh, by, it's per, by, um, you know, enrolling in voucher programs and escaping. What they fail to talk about though is that while students go to these schools, their rights don't necessarily follow them. So, um, you know, so I talk a lot, for instance, about, I teach, you know, constitutional law in public schools and, Students do not necessarily, their, their constitutional rights don't follow them. And so one right that really does matter that your previous um, panelists talked about was when students get kicked, you know, when students get drummed out or, you know, when, when after they've been admitted, I mean, that's in part due to a lack of constitutional due process and where students who are in public schools have you know, there's an issue. They have the right to, you know, to challenge that. And there's a hearing. There are some protections for them. And these students sign their rights away to due process when they go to a voucher program. So one thing that I always tell um, when I when I always talk about this is to understand that these rights are important. These are rights that, you know, that were fought very hard in public in constitution, you know, in Supreme Court cases and so on. And you give those up when you go to voucher programs. And so a lot of these stories that you were talking about before are due in part to the lack of protections that students have. And in Illinois, I believe there are also some of these schools, if a child gets into trouble for violating some code, they can also be fined. Is that, that seems like another right. undue burden on, uh, on students. <laughs> anyway. right. They can, you know, they can be fined. I mean, they can be yeah. fined. Uh, there's the practice of counseling out um, your prior. I mean, Julie Mead, as I understand it, who was on before um, University of Wisconsin professor, talks about the sorts of ways that students get counseled out where they say, you know, your program, our program is not a real fit for your student. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, for you know, students of color, this is the sort of thing that can happen very often is that if you know, if you don't fit within that model, then you're out, then they're out or either they're out or they're even if they're let in, then they're drummed out later on. So, so to me, I mean, if we extend, you know, voucher schools in Wisconsin are hugely growing, but in other states, like, you know, like Indiana, we just talked to Don Tanya, it's way bigger. And I believe in Arizona, it's much bigger. Um, At the end of the day, if, if, so many people are available to take vouchers. You know, if it's 400% of the poverty level, which is like $200,000 income per family, if everyone's taking those vouchers, uh, then all of a sudden you have private schools who can, who can raise their tuitions to just beyond what that voucher state money is. And wouldn't, it, seemingly wouldn't a school that doesn't want to have racial diversity uh, potentially in that private school all you know they could in an urban area could they raise that price so that so now you'd have two different 
levels of private schools when that public school is completely washed out. Now, now you can completely divide on any race, LGBTQ, uh, disability. You can divide whatever you want to divide because now, now you can't be equal because a public school system doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, that's very true. I think that the lack of, you know, some of these programs do not, many of these programs do not have, um, restrictions on the pricing of vouchers. And so that scenario can very easily happen. And in addition, you know, so that's certainly a big problem in where students, there's the illusion of choice where it's like, well, you have this, you know, you have this voucher and then you may not be able to use it. But in addition to that, I mean, I will also add that when you have these programs, um, they could also have a major impact on um, urban communities. Again, many of them that are underfunded as it is. Um, this could create, you know, this could create a great deal more stress in these schools that are going to be serving the lion's share of students. And so, there's that policy matter as well. That you know, these are these are various issues that need to be thought about by um, you know by families of color, students of color. Um, when they're thinking about voucher programs and in addition, so like thinking about protecting their public schools, because it is a very, it is a very real possibility that they could lose them if a voucher program becomes too large. Thank you so much, Dr. Preston Green. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And again, I'd also like to connect with you and, and, and find a way to amplify these messages and educate folks on what the impacts are of voucher systems. Thank you so much. You're welcome, and thank you. It's great to be on. Thank you. Have a great evening, and we're going to take a quick break here, and we're going to wrap up when we come back on the Right Wing War on Education on WCPT 820, Heartland Signal, and KTNF 950 AM. Hi, folks. I'm Kirk Bankstead from the Monaco Brewing Company, and I sell Choice Hard Seltzer, an all-natural grapefruit and lime-flavored booze that you can enjoy for only 100 calories a can. A percentage of the proceeds of each can sold goes to reproductive rights groups in the Chicagoland area. Enjoy a light, refreshing hard seltzer and support reproductive freedom at the same time. Now available at Provisions Uptown in Chicago and R&J Wine and Spirits in Glenview, as well as Eastside Cafe, Coffee and Wine Bar in East Dundee, where Kate is serving up smiles and drink responsibly. And we are back with Kirk Bangstead and uh, Monaco Brewing Company's Right Wing War on Public Education. Take it home, Kirk. What do you want to tell folks? All right. Um, so this last segment is our last uh, a bit of this this whole season. Um, I've compiled some of the most salient quotes uh, from all of the guests that we've had. And we're going to use this hopefully in our Supreme Court case uh, because these are witnesses that are experts who have shown us uh, why voucher schools are hurting public schools so bad. And, and it's a, a rather long video. So let's let's get to it right away and then we can talk afterwards. OK, Patty. Outstanding. Sounds good. Let's take it. Do we have it? I don't have it. Oh, there we go. Yay! Millions of dollars being siphoned away from our public schools and kids are getting hurt on a daily basis. You know, there are so many different things that are a problem with a voucher schools, the lack of accountability, and certainly the fact that they choose the students they want. You know, it's not that parents really can choose a school. The schools get to choose the students. And so students with disabilities, students with behavior issues, students who have additional needs, whether they're English language learning needs um, or or are, are, are different in, in any way or need additional services, the, the voucher schools don't have to take them. And in fact, many schools actually actively kind of um, counsel them out. 
Nikki, what's happening? I mean, what's how does the rubber hit the road when we see 70% reimbursement rates for special education moving down to 26 to 30%? What does that mean for schools? What it means is that kids will not get what they need because legally you can't cut special education, which means you cut from the general fund. And therefore, there goes the math team, there goes the football team, there goes any social programs. And what it does is it's going to contrast kids with disabilities versus kids without. And people are going to say, well, why do we have to fund them? And it will create an absolute absolute war between those who have and those who have not. You have to realize this is not a choice. This isn't school choice. This is a purposeful bankrupting of the education system. But as of today, as of this budget that was just passed, we still only get reimbursed at approximately 30% compared to the vouchers and charters uh, now with the new budget being reimbursed at like 90 95%. The state of Wisconsin has a $4 billion surplus right now. So it's not as though they can't find the resources or there's no way that they could make these investments and they have to make hard choices. They're simply choosing not to. I mean, they're, they're simply deciding, you know, at the higher ed level and K-12 level, they're simply deciding that they're not going to invest in these resources and give kids the resources they need. The U.S. Supreme Court said yes, um, that if a state funds private schools, it has to also send public funds to religious schools. So um, a while back, the battle in the courts was about whether a state could fund religious schools at all if it so chose. But now states don't have a choice. If they fund any private schools, they have to fund religious schools. And those voucher schools get their money first, and whatever's left is kind of divvied up uh, and balanced out throughout the rest of the, uh, of the state of Wisconsin. No one talks about or no one has looked at the fact that until very recently, school choice wasn't available anywhere else but Milwaukee. Milwaukee is a city. It's a city that is made up mostly of black and brown residents. And for some strange reason, and I'm not even going to call this strange, I, at this point, I don't know if I can call it anything other than racism, but how is it that Milwaukee continuously is underfunded? How are they targeted for these scams and these things? The people that it hurts the most are the most economically disadvantaged areas because the general aid formula is to help them keep their property taxes in check uh, based on their poverty. And the more that voucher money is taken out of that general aid, the higher the tax impact is on those communities, which to me is the reverse Robin Hood effect, right? We're taking money from the poor and giving it to the richer, which just doesn't make a lot of sense. There's no state law that says that students require educators who are certified and trained in all these different areas. Only in public schools. It's like the Wild West. That's the great mystery of privatization to me is why anyone would choose to put their child into a system where you literally give up your rights as a parent to be actively engaged in the education of your child. It's only in a public school that you have recourse to the democratically elected officials who you have chosen to to serve and represent you. So you can go to your board, you can share your concerns, you can have a say in curricular matters. You don't have any of those things as a parent in a private school. And you don't necessarily even know what kind of 
teachers are in front of your kids during the day if those teachers don't have to be fully licensed. But once the child is enrolled in that private school that's participating in the special needs scholarship program, the parent and the the school, the private school people, look over the IEP and they decide what they're going to deliver. They do not have to deliver any of the services that are in the IEP. But they can take the 15000 But they can until take the, the 15000 the third Friday. Yes. Until the as third Friday. As, well, as long as the parent says that what they, what they agree to provide is sufficient. If the parents say, okay with me, then they can take the money without providing any services to the child. And there's even a term that's emerged, because this is so common, something called pop-up schools, which they open uh, to take advantage of vouchers, and then they shut down after an average of only about four years. And we're seeing this borne out, like, not just with a couple of anecdotes, but actually with sort of like systematic uh, systematic data. They, they had mentioned, hey, we'll take all that administrative cost and the teaching uh, off your plates as a private business. We'll take care of it, and then we will receive that aid. So again, the privatization really impacts us here uh, in Eau Claire. But again, we don't have that control. We don't have that opportunity to influence as well. But again, not to the cost of our public school students here and, and really impacting public school students statewide. I think it's important to uh, mention the data that came out last week, too, about voucher schools, where they scored their test scores were significantly lower than the public school districts in Wisconsin. Um, so they're really yeah, they, this whole idea that the voucher schools are outperforming public schools anyway is nonsense because sort of objectively they aren't. And that's so not just in Wisconsin. That's everywhere. Yeah. I didn't want to just bring a lawsuit um, without actually trying to explain to people, uh, listeners in Chicago, Minneapolis, and obviously everyone uh, that I can possibly reach in Wisconsin, uh, we just don't want to get rid of voucher schools without telling people why they're bad. And, and, and that's what we're doing here today. What I hear from parents most is, why aren't we investing more in public education? Why aren't we investing in good schools? for my kids to be able to attend. I want my kids to be able to have good choices in the public school system. That's that's what I hear. There is irreparable harm happening to students every day. And under the guise of creating choice, they've created a cancer on our public schools, and we've got to get rid of it. And so at the very core of this struggle is a fight for the democracy basics. We want to live in thriving communities. We need thriving public schools. You want thriving public schools? You need to fully invest in making sure that your educators have what they need to do the jobs they're trained to do, then trust them to do it, and then by all means elect school board members who are going to make sure that they get it and who are going to go to bat for those educators and those kids and who are going to stand up for policies that work for for all of the public schools, not just some of them, not just the haves, right? And we need to come together and and say enough is enough. uh, Stop playing politics in our name and stop playing these sick games with our kids. The Supreme Court of Wisconsin just uh, uh, sent an order to, to the plaintiffs in this case, us, and the defendants, which is Robin Voss, the Department of Public Instruction, and the Wisconsin Department of Administration, and they uh, ordered all of us to send in arguments uh, to convince them to take this case uh, immediately. Uh, 
That means, I mean, they could have rejected this case outright and said, you have to do it the old-fashioned way, which is to take it in a small court first and then win there or lose there and appeal. Hey, hey. appeal. Uh, but we went straight to the Supreme Court because we think it's that important to Wisconsin to end uh, what's going on here. And so by asking us to actually submit arguments, it means that they are at least willing to entertain to take this case, uh, which means that if we can, it's going to probably... Uh, you know, skip an entire year of litigation if if they take this case right away. Patty, you are on mute, my dear. Um, what are your thoughts as we uh, wrap up these these segments, Kirk? Because a lot of tremendous work and information. Take it away. Yeah. So uh, that video, you know, just kind of we try to make it as short as possible and also include some of all some of what all of our guests said and so we created this whole series to create a body of evidence uh, that we could help convince people that the school voucher system in Wisconsin is really hurting public schools it's not helping kids it's hurting teachers uh, so 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 you know this is our last show uh, but the fight continues uh, yep. and we're, and we are uh, and we, we've created, because of you, Patty, and because of WCPT, we were able to create this body of work uh, that we hope to submit to the Supreme Court and we hope to submit to the, the people of Wisconsin uh, so that they can understand what's going on here. Because it's so complicated. There's so many angles to this. Uh, when, when people hear school choice, they're like, yes, I want choice. And that's just a misnomer. And we've, 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 we've just spanked that idea right out of the room <laughs> over the last like 10 weeks. <laughs> yeah. That's, hey, that's the whole point of driving it home. We have been driving this home and I'm really grateful for all the information. I know Julie's uh, behind the curtain over there. So thank you so much for all of this, for, for leading the charge on this and, uh, and for really, I think enlightening so many people who kind of, this is all background noise for them too. You know what I mean? Yeah. This, this issue is, is is going is a death spiral for the public school system. It's meant to uh, uh, undermine the public school system to enrich uh, people who are trying to get rich off of your tax dollars and to indoctrinate kids into into religious education. And it's 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 happening all over America. We have a chance to stop it in Wisconsin. And and but but it's so hard to get people on board uh, because it's so complicated. So so hopefully this will allow some more transparency. Uh, and I hope people go to upnorthpodcast.com and listen to the entire uh, the entire series. Uh, there's there's about 10 weeks of this. So I, I would encourage you to listen to all of our guests and not just this little video snippet to really learn about this issue. And as far as the uh, the snippets, too, with the uh, social media, though, I think it's really great to have that as consumable pieces of information as well. So oh. it's all in Monaco Brink Company's uh, on your social media. Is that across all platforms? Yeah, you can see it on TikTok, on Instagram, on Facebook. We release a little 60-second snippet every day uh, so that people can digest it uh, in little bits, uh, which is really helpful. Outstanding. And uh, I really. Oh, and uh, Schoolhouse Bach. Don't forget about that, too. I'm <laughs> excited about that. We all about this case as well, because uh, we wanted people to understand uh, just to see it on s shelves and understand that this case is happening. Thank you so much, Kirk, and all of our guests have been tremendous. Again, thank you, Julie. Thank you, Alejandro, back at the station, and Matt Cummings for making this show possible today. Mike Crute's up next with The Devil's Advocate, and we'll be back tomorrow with another wonderful show. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>